1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1. I'm about to take a couple of weeks on vacation. And we were about to jump into Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And I didn't really want to do that tonight and then miss two weeks and try to come back and pick back up. So before we move into that section of Scripture, um, we'll look at this passage tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And let's read verse 1 down through verse, seven, uh, verse 17. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia... Remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. And ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do bow before you, our eternal King, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. God, we are grateful that you are all of those things and that um, in every area where we see deficiency in ourself, God, we only see perfection in you. We're grateful, Father, that immense as you are, as as powerful as you are, 
as holy as you are, you have turned your heart towards a people to rescue and you send Christ Jesus into the world to save sinners. Father, we pray that you would not let us get over the wonder of that and that in love to him, we would gladly sing his praises and live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. God, as we look at this passage tonight, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. In verses 12 through 17, Paul describes the grace of God to him personally. And in verse 15, right in the middle of that, he also gives a general declaration of what Christ came to do. Or, if you turn it around and say it the other way, in verse 15, Paul states that Christ Jesus came to do something for the many. And God's grace is wonderfully, wonderfully illustrated in Paul in the verses that surround that. I'd like us to consider verse 15 tonight. And we'll look at it under three headings. The first is a statement about the type of declaration being made. So it's a statement on the statement. He says it's a trustworthy statement. Um, and so, first we'll consider the character of the statement that he makes. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. So, it, the statement that he wants to make is first set apart by an introduction. And it's a kind of a formulaic introduction. There are five of these trustworthy statements in the New Testament. And they're all in the pastoral epistles. Three of them are in 1 Timothy. And apparently, these trustworthy statements were truths that were known and maybe often repeated by the early church. So in a period where you didn't have a printing press and there's not a lot of copies of the Bible floating around, maybe you have portions of scriptures. They were probably much more reliant upon oral tradition to some degree. And so these little statements were, you know, Shared and, and here's, here's something to hang your hat on. Here's this trustworthy statement. And so here's one that, that Paul relates to them that they would be familiar with. Here is one that you should know. Here's a trustworthy statement. The emphasis is on the quality of the statement that he makes. It's trustworthy. There are lots of statements in our world that are not trustworthy. There are people who talk and you discount everything that comes out of their mouth because they're not trustworthy. And there are some oft-repeated statements, sayings, that really should go out of circulation because they're not true and they're not trustworthy. So, for instance, you hear people say, just follow your heart. And it's terrible advice, isn't it? Our hearts are seldom good guides. Or you just have to be true to yourself or do what's right for you. Well, what if what's right for you is, is wrong for everybody around you? If you just do what's right for you, you're probably going to ignore Philippians chapter 2 that we've just been looking at about you know, being of the same mind and having the same heart and being in, or love and, and being intent on one purpose. You know, no, I'm going to do what's right for me. And if that's not what's right for you, then so be it. So those kinds of statements are terrible statements. They're not trustworthy. But here is a statement you can trust. And since it's so trustworthy, you should listen carefully to this statement. And 
what is being communicated. It's not something that you need to tune out, you know, and, and miss. There are times when my kids are talking and because especially one communicates so much, I kind of zone out and I don't hear everything that's being said. He likes to especially talk when I'm in the middle of doing something else, you know. And so uh, in the mornings, in the morning I get up and I open my Bible and he comes and knocks on the door and like, yeah, I'm reading my Bible, but this is important. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's the one time when it really is, you know. Um, and so it's whatever it is, you know, whatever thought happened to pop into his mind at the moment. And uh, so after a few of those, I just kind of like, I don't want to hear anything right now, you know. And you, you kind of tune him out. We don't want to tune this out. It's a trustworthy statement. There's importance here. Sometimes in the sermon, you may do this. I find myself doing this sometimes because of distractions. And sometimes the distractions sitting beside me. But sometimes it's other distractions. Sometimes it's my own heart. I find that I've zoned out a bit. And I don't hear everything that's being said. And I have to come back and try to you know, engage again. And maybe I've missed something that's important. You have to go back later and try to find out what it was. Well, perhaps Paul's hearers, as they hear this letter being read, maybe this statement clues them in, you know, to say, hey, if you were about to, to zone out, don't zone out now. This is a trustworthy statement. It's deserving of full acceptance. So listen. And he calls their attention back. Here's something you've got to get a hold of. It's a trustworthy statement. But what is it that makes this statement so trustworthy? Well, first, it's trustworthy because of the one who's speaking. And I don't mean Paul. It's not trustworthy just because Paul said it. It's trustworthy because it's something that God has revealed. It's something that God ultimately has said. And because of the one who speaks it, everyone who hears it should say, Oh, that must be true because God is not a liar. And so it bears weight that would not, we would not give to the words of any other person, any other you know, human, because God said it. But it also bears a different kind of weight. It's trustworthy because Paul gives testimony to the fact that he has found it to be true in his own experience. And so have many of the people he's writing to here as he writes to Timothy. Here is a trustworthy statement. And everybody who has found it to be true themselves should agree. Like, That's right. That is trustworthy. That's what Christ Jesus came to do. You're right, Paul. And so they bear a personal testimony. Now, I understand that one is eminently more important than the other. One is much more weighty than the other. But the second one is not unimportant. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But if you only know it as a statement of fact and not as something that you've experienced, well, you can believe that fact and go to hell. And so it's a true statement. It's a statement, though, that they also have come to understand to be true and to, to accept as true. And so it's something that you need to hear, he says. All these people are, that they bear witness to the fact. Yes, it's true. That's what he's come to do. Paul not only says it's a trustworthy statement, but he also says it's a statement deserving full acceptance. And so a couple of ideas perhaps here. One is that of complete acceptance. 
It's a reliable statement because of what it is in itself. And so you should listen and pay heed. But it's also a statement that you need to get because it's so perfectly suited to all those to whom it comes. Here's a statement that's relevant to you and your situation. It fits your situation so perfectly. It's so perfectly suited to you that it's worthy of nothing less than full acceptance. It's not just a statement that you can admire. Do you ever see statements like that? Maybe someone puts a sentence together so well. It's so memorable the way they put it together. You look at it and think, I wish I'd said that. And you remember it. It's memorable. Someone takes this idea that, that you've kind of got jumbled about in your mind and they say it so concisely. And you hear that and it's like, yeah, that's what I wish. I, that's what I meant. There are certain people you can think of perhaps who, who are good at that. And, and you listen to them or you read them and yeah, I wish I'd said that. Maybe you underline that statement. I, I got one this morning. Charles Bridges. He was talking about how the more we learn about God, the more our lips ought to respond in praise. You know, the two ought to go together. And he said, when our mind is dark, our lips are sealed. And just that, I thought, yeah, that, that's something I can remember. But this isn't a statement that's just admirable, pithy. This is not a statement that is mostly true, but you have to receive it with some caution. There are some statements like that, aren't there? Sometimes you'll hear people say, there's some meat right here, but you have, to, you have to spit out the bones. This isn't one of those. There are no bones to spit out. There's no caution here. Like, you know, some of what this guy says is good, but some of what he says isn't so good, so be careful. There's none of that. This is not a statement that is completely true, but irrelevant to you. You know, you can say things that are true, but just doesn't fit the occasion at all. I mean, you can think about a person who's, you know, maybe in a moment of a personal crisis. And someone comes up and starts extolling the virtues of the combustible engine. And maybe they are like brainy about that subject. And they, what they're saying is right, but who cares? You know, this crisis is happening. It's irrelevant. This isn't one of those. This statement is both absolutely true and absolutely relevant to you. It's so relevant to everyone here tonight that I can say without fear of contradiction that this is a word of God to you. And it's so absolutely true and so absolutely relevant to you that anything less than full acceptance of this statement is unworthy of the statement and unworthy of the God who makes it. So, full acceptance. But it also could have the sense of all acceptance. Or uh, some read it like this. The acceptance of all. A universal acceptance. Everybody ought to accept this. If that's what it means, then the emphasis is not, it's not so much on complete acceptance as on universal acceptance. No one should reject it. It's It's true. No one can think reasonably and look at this statement and say, that's not right. Well, of course, both are true. Everyone should completely 
accept this trustworthy statement. But I, I bring out this, this other idea, this, this point, to just highlight the fact that this statement is fit for everyone. You know, there are some subjects that are kind of grown-up subjects. We have been supporting and helping with the Transformation Garden. And I'm so glad we do that. But I really don't want my little ones to have to understand what that thing is all about, you know? The day will come when they have to understand stuff like that. But it's not now. So when I say grown-up subject, I don't mean sinful I just mean there's some subjects that little kids aren't ready for yet. So there are some things we could say that there's nothing wrong with that subject, but it's not really fit for all audiences. But this is fit for everyone. It doesn't matter how little you are or how old you are. It doesn't matter what, you know, whatever demographic you want to, to put out there, whatever class you're in, whatever ethnicity you are, whatever place you live in the world it doesn't matter here is a statement fit for everyone that everyone ought to receive because it is so relevant to them it deserves a full and universal acceptance it's trustworthy what is the statement that's so relevant and so trustworthy what is this that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners would again like to think about just that statement in three parts. First, the subject of this statement, Christ Jesus. If you put any other name there, this sentence falls apart. Any other name and, you know, you can throw the sentence out. It's no longer trustworthy. Chuck Baggett came into the world to save sinners? Forget that. That's not trustworthy. I cannot do that. And neither can anyone else. But this one can. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul identifies him in two ways. First, by his title, with reference to his office. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And the word Christ has bound up in it everything that the Scripture teaches concerning the promised Messiah, this anointed one, who would be God's final prophet who would be God's true priest, the one who would be God's exalted king. This one, this Christ, is the one who would be anointed to speak to us the very word of God. And not as an intermediary. He's not an agent. You know, Paul, as he writes the words in this Bible, he, he, he writes the words of God. But Paul is an intermediary. But when Jesus speaks, it's God speaking. He speaks the words of God from the mouth of God, if you will. And he himself is the very embodiment of the truth of God. Jesus comes as the priest who doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself before he can offer sacrifices for anyone else. And he doesn't have to keep offering sacrifices again and again. But he comes as one who's perfectly innocent himself and offers the sacrifice of himself to God, and he's done. He's the priest who alone is fit to offer that kind of sacrifice and to represent us that way before the Father. 
And it's this priest who doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself and whose work is completed who intercedes for us, accepted by the Father himself. He guarantees we also have been accepted. He is the one who is the king, sitting upon the throne of David, ruling over an everlasting kingdom. He's all of that. The word Christ points to all the fullness of the richness of his work as our mediator. And so when we think of him, especially in this season, we do remember he came into the world. And yes, he's born, but he's more than a baby in a manger. He is prophet, priest, and king. He is our Christ. He is our Savior and our Lord. This title Christ is not attached or given to us in an abstract way. It's not a job title, you know, on a job description. It is attached to a person. Christ Jesus. Christ is his title. Jesus is his name. You remember in Matthew chapter 1, after Joseph finds out about the situation that's going on with Mary, and he's not sure what to do. Verses 20 and 21 An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You'll call his name Jesus. That's his name. And so they do. And we read in the Gospels, Jesus said... This Jesus went there. Jesus did this. He went, Jesus went about doing good. That's his name. It's attached to a person. And so when Paul says that this is a trustworthy statement, it's a statement about the activity of a person. And that person is Christ Jesus. What is his activity? Why did he come? Well, the verse says that Christ Jesus came into the world. When your children were born, did you have a birth announcement? I think I remember a time when there were birth announcements in the newspaper. I don't think I see those anymore. Of course, I don't really get a newspaper anymore either. But um, I think I do remember like birth announcements in the newspaper. Mr. Miss So-and-so, you know. If you had a birth announcement that, that you made, did any of you make the announcement like this? Our baby, boy, girl, whatever, you know, came into the world at this time. Well, maybe you did, but probably not. It was, the baby was born, maybe entered the world, but we don't usually talk just that way. And Paul certainly means more than Christ was born, although that's true, isn't it? But there's so much more than just the fact that a birth occurred. He comes into the world. But where every other child that's born, there's, there's a real beginning. So much so that you know, before the conception, you didn't exist except in the mind of God. Christ Jesus, that's not true of him. Where we were all created, he was not created. He's the creator. And before his conception, he did exist. The second person of the Godhead existed eternally and yes he he comes into the world there's a point in time where that happens and he becomes flesh 
But he existed before any of that. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then you drop down to verse 14, and we're told that this Word that was with God in the beginning, and it was God, this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's the eternal word, pre-existing all of the creation. None of the creation exists apart from him. Yet he became flesh. I believe that 1 Timothy 1.15 has reference to, to both of these realities. The pre-existence of Christ. His humility. He came into the world. The word world is used in a few ways in the New Testament. Sometimes of a place, the world we live on. But also sometimes of a condition, a place of sin, a fallen world. You are worldly, those kinds of things. Both are applicable here, but I think the condition is more startling than the place. He comes to a world that's under the curse of sin. He comes into that context for the purpose of salvation. That's Paul's statement here. He came to the world to save sinners. So I think the emphasis is probably there more than, than geography. The place that he comes to is the place where sin is a reality and where evil is, is ugly and an ever-present thing to contend with. It's the place where because of the curse, there's death. And that's where he comes. That's where you see his humility. And then why he comes. The purpose. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. The Greek is more emphatic. Christ Jesus came to the world sinners to save. People who only see Jesus as a good teacher or a moral example to be followed have to reinterpret this verse somehow because it doesn't fit that narrative. If he only is a good teacher, then he cannot save sinners. If he's just an example to follow a good moral guy, then he cannot save sinners. We can't say that that's the reason for his entrance into this world. But he's more than that. And he comes to do more than that. Paul says it again, you know, succinctly, concisely. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What a work God did in Paul to bring him to the place to be able to write something like that. 
before Christ came to Paul, I would think that Paul thought Jews were the objects of salvation only, and those Gentiles, you know, all those people out there, kind of like good Pharisees everywhere, I guess, you know, all those people out there, they're the sinners, but maybe without any reference really to a Savior available to them. But Paul meets Jesus, and he's so changed that he can not only write of sinners out there, but of himself, the foremost of them. And Christ Jesus came to save them, us, me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What's a sinner? Well, the word that Paul uses here in 1 Timothy describes someone who has missed the mark. It describes those who have failed to live up to a standard. But whose standard? God's standard. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's His standard. So when you think about sin, you really have to think first about God. We do sin against other people, and that's a real thing, and not just to be forgotten about. But first, you've sinned against God. When you think about the commandments, summed up in the New Testament, you know, the great commandment, and the second, the great commandments to love the Lord your God, and the second, love your neighbor. But first, God. And so we can't just think about sin as, as what has happened against me. You know, there are sinners out there and they've, they've hurt me. Or even how I have sinned against someone else only. Certainly, I'm, again, I'm not saying forget that. But the priority, the first thing is the fact that I've fallen short of the glory of God. I have failed His standard. I've offended Him. He is offended at my sin. And it's for people like that that Jesus came into the world to save. What does it mean to save? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Okay, but what does that mean? Well, there's both a, a negative side of that and a positive side. And Christ meets both by bringing us out of the negative side into a positive side. He has come and rescued us from the guilt of sin. We are a guilty people. Every time we fall short of the glory of God, we're guilty and we're adding guilt daily. But Christ Jesus removes that guilt from us and brings us righteousness. He has met the standard of God. He has met the glory of God. And He applies that righteousness to us. And God accepts that. We've been rescued from the slavery of sin. Because if you are in sin, if that's what you obey, then that's your master. And you're enslaved to that. But He comes and frees us from that slavery and brings us into the freedom of sons. We're no longer in bondage. But as children of God, we enjoy that freedom. He comes and rescues us from the punishment of sin. Because we are guilty, we deserve to be punished. His law demands that satisfaction. 
But Christ pays that himself and moves us out of the place of the curse, the, the sentence upon us, and he moves us into a place of blessing. Christ removes us from alienation and he reconciles us to the Father and brings us into fellowship and communion with the Father. He brings us from the place of wrath to a place where the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. He brings us from death to life everlasting. Christ Jesus has come and he's done that and, and more. And that is what it means to save. He brings us out of our sin and our guilt and all that accompanies that and our deadness to God. And he brings us to him so that we come to him not trembling in fear for the wrath that hangs over us, but we come to him with love in our hearts and gratitude to this God who's rescued us in forgiveness and provided all that himself, even though he was the one who was offended. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then finally, Paul adds this last statement, this last little bit of verse 15, among whom I am foremost of all. So we go from this general statement this is what Christ has come to do to save sinners to this specific example of whom I am the foremost of all. Paul knows this to be a trustworthy statement. God said it. He has no doubt about it. But he also knows it to be true by experience. He came to save sinners and he saved me. I know it to be trustworthy. I've experienced it. Proven it to be true. But God not only saved Paul, He puts Paul before us as an example, the foremost of sinners. And in verse 16, Paul says, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. So he identifies himself as the foremost of sinners or the chief of sinners. Not in a false humility kind of way. He sees himself that way, but he says, look, God rescues me. And he does so as a demonstration to you. And it's as if, it's as if he does so to raise this thought perhaps in you. If Jesus will save Paul, why not me? If Jesus will save the foremost of sinners... Why not me? If he will rescue Paul, who was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, why not me? Well, I put before you tonight this trustworthy statement that's relevant to all of us. And you may agree that it's trustworthy. It's the Bible. God said it. Obviously, it's trustworthy. But the question remains, has it found full acceptance with you? Full acceptance so that you can say with Paul, this is my experience. I have found that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like me. It's not enough to admire the statement. It's not enough to agree with it. You can agree with the statement and still be in your sins. Jesus still must save you. And look how willing he is. He 
came into this world. Why? To save sinners. That's the whole reason he came. And if you say, well, that's me. I am a sinner. Then you have every reason to think that Christ Jesus came for you. But how do you move from agreeing that this is a true statement to being able to say that it's true of me? Jesus saved me. And you do it by faith. By faith, you turn away from your sin and whatever else would keep you from following Jesus. By faith, you determine to get up and go to him. Jesus welcomes sinners who come to him by faith. That's why he came into the world. To save sinners. Well, Father, I pray that seed might fall on good ground and bear fruit. And God, for all those who can identify with this statement and say, it's true of me. Christ came and saved me. God, I pray that the simple thoughts here in this verse would cause our hearts and our lips to resound in praise to our King. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.